The Open Pantry Podcast is a hospitality podcast where I interview people within the hospitality industry about both their lives in and outside the industry. Hey, I'm Sean DeVries and I'm your host. I hope you really enjoy these episodes. My podcast aims to show that the thing that links all people in hospitality is a want to be creative, support each other and always do better. I really hope you enjoy the episode, so make sure you subscribe and always leave me some feedback. Enjoy. Uh, welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for yet another episode. Fantastic to have you on board listening or watching. Um, as we move forward in the podcast, uh, it's fantastic to open up my base of people that I know and this young lady uh, reached out to me a couple of weeks ago. I checked out what she was doing and um, was really, really excited to have her on the podcast. Um, we even recorded this last week and now we're re-recording it again after I stuffed it up. So I'm even more excited to have Precious Pioneer on the podcast. How are you, Precious? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Now, obviously, you are uh, an amazing pastry chef. You're in Washington, D.C., all the way to America for me. Uh, you've got your own podcast, which is all around food, which is the main reason that um, I really respected what you're doing at the moment. But let's talk about, you know, how you started out in your career because you're you're a pastry chef. You know, I'm a baker by trade. Um, you, you're obviously doing so well. I remember from last week's conversation and seeing what you've been doing. So how did you get into pastry chefing? Um, so, hmm. I guess um, I originally kind of, I guess we can start start back when I was a little bit younger. I really got interested into baking and pastry watching that show on TLC, uh, Cake Boss, where they mm-hmm. design these beautiful, crazy looking cakes. And I always thought that was so cool because I was really into art at the time. And when I was younger, my mom used to make uh, these Christmas cookies uh, growing up, but she was known as like the crazy cookie lady. She'd make hundreds and hundreds of cookies for our neighbors, like four blocks down. And so I think um, growing up baking uh, pastries for guests and just really kind of working with that, I really had a love and passion for making uh, pastries. Um, But it wasn't until I got into college where I realized that culinary is kind of cool too. And so I started learning uh, a little bit of both. So I'm definitely a stronger uh, baker than I am a chef in the culinary side. Um, But I think that's where my passion originally started. Um, I had a few jobs where I just learned all kinds of different skill sets on my old job was as an artisan bread maker. And so I was in charge of making 400 variety of loaves every morning at like 4am. And then um, I switched over to something a little bit more relaxing. You know, I get to sleep in at least a little bit. I have to come in at nine. Um, And, um, and then I moved into chocolatiering and um, truffle making and creme brulees. And that's just a really interesting side. And so I think that's kind of my journey uh, thus far, but that's where it originally started. Did you find, do you reckon that um, most, most people will become chefs and then they'll start to learn? And part of that sort of four-year apprenticeship with most chefs is they'll learn baking, right? And they'll, mm-hmm. and they'll do those little tricks. And then maybe the end of their career, they'll sort of do a bit of pastry or that kind of stuff. And I, I always laugh because they always find it really, you know, super hard <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Do you think it's um, a real benefit that you learnt sort of the other way in that you've done pastry, you've done the stuff that's really formatively really 
tough and hard. You have to stick to a recipe. You have to stick to percentages. You can't deviate like culinary chefs do. Do you think that's been a blessing? Yes, actually, most definitely. Because the thing is, though, when you start off with something incredibly strict and incredibly disciplined, like baking is, like it's a chemistry to mm. the T. And so mo- the reason why most people struggle is because they have that urge to add a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Mm. Um, but you can't really do that with baking unless you truly understand how all the ingredients chemically react with each other because um, it's the texture, it's how it rises, it's the air pockets that really make things fluffy, light, creamy, all these different things. And you're not really able to understand that through baking unless you study it. But on the other hand, culinary, you can kind of, um, you can use your eyes your, while you're cooking. You can use your senses while you're making a soup. You can taste it and see if it's reduced down enough. It's a very tangible sort of learning uh, skill set. And so switching from something that's something you can see, touch, when you see a, a steak coloring or when a chicken, a fried chicken or something, mm. whatever you're working with, changing uh, color, you can see that as a visual element of cooking. But for baking, you just pray and then you throw it in the oven, you know, so you just really... <laughs> don't know until you take it out of the oven and so that's a completely different experience and so I feel like coming from a strong baking side and then to culinary I'm very very interested in why certain things work or why it's important to blanch peas or vegetables after you stick them stick them out of boiling water you know all these different chemical elements I'm very interested because I understand on the baking side why every little thing plays a role. And so on the cooking side, I feel like I learn way more than a typical person who's just learning how to cook for the first time because I know how to look for those small elements that's very crucial in baking. So I think it's definitely Mm -hmm. set me on the right foot, you know, starting with the hard part first and moving into the easier side. Not to say that, you know, like the other chefs don't have it hard, but I've seen them struggle in chocolatiering, you know, so... (laughs) Um (laughs) It all comes to a fray when you start trying to temper chocolate, right? It's um, right. <laughs> um, when you know those years of you watching, you know, Cake Boss and people like Duff, and you know, make those amazing cakes and do that amazing fondant and sugar work, and then all of a sudden, you know, you you so you get romanticized by being, you know, watching those kind of programs, which is amazing. Then you get to school and you start to learn these kind of things. You start to work a line with other pastry chefs and other bakers and stuff like what was probably the hardest thing that came out of that for you that you thought would be easy because it looks super cool on TV when you're watching it? Um, hmm. I think the, the funny thing is I'm a very, very quick learner. So I, I always, I'm very analytical in that sense because I know that I think it's, I think it's the baking that's instilled in me because I, as much as I try to implement my own ways of doing something, I have to un, I know the importance of understanding the basics. And then once you master that, then you have the creative freedom to throw in whatever, manipulate recipes. But I think um, one aspect that I definitely struggled with a little bit is under, I think finding the roots of why certain things work and why certain things you know, like mm. you, you have to, with baking, especially you have the urge to kind of rush it or find shortcuts or you're like, okay, why does this have to sit out for three hours? I just don't get it. Yeah. It can, you can just heat it up a little bit and it'll rise quicker. And then you can throw it in the oven. Like, I don't understand, you know, all these little like yeah. hacks that your brain is trying to associate with shortcuts. You have to really understand why it does need that time or why it does need to ch- chill for three hours or overnight or something before you take it out and, you know, manipulate it or whatever you're doing. And so I think learning that 
they don't show you that in the shows. They're just like, okay, we're going to throw this cake in and slice it up. And exactly. And so mm. they, sh- they show you the highlights. And so taking that connotation of what you see to how actually how long something takes is a completely different parallel. You know, some, some cakes and some desserts take all day to make, you know, like all those, those really beautiful cakes that have like 20 layers that are very fine and thin, like, no, that take that's an all day event. Your cake needs to be made cooled, you know, in the cooler. <laughs> it needs to be sliced and leveled evenly. You have to measure it with a ruler. Like this isn't just yeah, yeah it's not. It, it's a very different connotation of what you what you see on TV. I know you're in. I know you're in early stages of your career, but like, how do you think it's shaped? How do you think your work life has actually shaped you personally now? Because I found when I started baking at sort of sixteen, like it it started to make me more patient because I had to be more patient. I had to wait, like you just said, I had to wait for something to rise or I had to, you know, wait for something to develop and form. Like, have we found it sort of changed you so far? Honestly, because I'm so new, I think that I am very much in the learning stages of my life. You know, I I consider myself in the sponge period. Um, Originally, um, I always knew that I wanted to open my own restaurant. And so I'm just like, okay, well, I got to insert myself in here somehow. And so when I turned 16, you know, the legal working age, I've worked at every possible deli imaginable. And then the way that I saw it is I'm going to learn every single skill that I can while I'm here. And then once I learn as much as I can, and there isn't room for improvement, then it's time for me to move on, you know, just Mm -hmm. thank you move on because the thing is though like i'm not going to be a sandwich maker for my lifelong goal you know so (laughs) and and there and i know that those jobs especially in the restaurant industry are very replaceable you know they're not very valued as much as like i would value them and so to learn those crucial skills of like when you're first starting out like money handling or customer service and all these different things even like um, how management works and how employee execution works i think that's very important to kind of understand from the outside because I had the intention of growing and learning these things. And so managing inventory, food waste, all these different things is something that you can just learn, but you need to be in the field to understand. Like you can read it, but you don't really understand until you're there. And so with that mindset, I kind of moved on to quick service, you know, like Panera Mm -hmm. and all these different things as an early bakery there, Panera is known for their bread. So I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. I can start off with some entry level breads, cookie skills, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, with that knowledge, um, I started, uh, started my own, um, cookie company. I'm like, you know what? Like I'm a cookie expert. I know how to really make (laughs) a really good cookie. So I had that for two years and that was really fun. It was a vegan cookie company. I was in a couple of locations. I had an online store. It was doing really well. Um, but then a couple of, you know, life happens. I mm-hmm. broke my leg twice. Oh, wow. um, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm a javelin thrower. I was a javelin thrower. And so I was oh. juggling a lot of different things. You know, I had uh, work. I worked at a restaurant at that time. I had the cookie company. Um, I was a track athlete and I was in school. So well, there was wait. like all these little okay. things that I was balancing. And so I kind of had to take a step back and realize what were my goals and my goals are to become a really good chef. So making cookies as much as I really, really loved it wasn't something that I wanted to put my roots into and really build and grow in that one location when I knew that I wanted to travel and learn all these other skills. And so unfortunately I had to let it go, but it was one of those things just to see if I could do it. 
And so I think that over time, you know, even though I am fairly young and early in my career, I made it my mission over the past couple of years to just learn and accumulate as many skills as I could, you know, even though it didn't always pay the most. And it's just all these different skills that I knew would be essential to be a really strong hospitality leader, a sustainable chef, all these different skills, whether that was volunteering at a vegetable garden over the weekends or all these different things I think were very valuable and just learning what I wanted to learn and uh, kind of were little tools in my toolbox so I can become um, a stronger chef. You know? Yeah. Wow. Well done you. Um, obviously you're still in Washington DC, like, um, and you're very close to it. You obviously do so many different things. Um, you've got your own podcast, um, you're close to the industry. Like what have you seen happen in the last, you know, sort of three months since COVID? Like what are you starting to see coming out, you know, sort of mid June now where people starting at uh, restaurants and cafes and that kind of stuff starting to recover and reopen? Um, it's just, it's been a very interesting, um, transition. Like, uh, we saw that a lot of restaurants, um, did close down and they tried to recover with takeout. Um, some of them didn't make it. Some of them closed for a while, especially mom and pops who, who didn't have the technology like Uber Eats and all these different online platforms that kind of help sustain a lot of other businesses. Um, we saw a lot of uh, fast food blooming. There's, I drove by today, Chick-fil-A still has a line around three blocks. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but so we've definitely seen the highs and lows. People are starting to go out a little bit more, be a little bit more active. But unfortunately, um, I just saw a whole bunch of just restaurants to scrap together what they had left uh, with the 40 million unemployment rate really high. Yeah. You know, me being one of them, the restaurant yeah. industry was definitely impact. And so if you really didn't have a different business model than your typical dining facility, then I think everyone really struggled. Mm -hmm. um, the restaurant that I worked at, you know, was very fortunate because they had, it was a winery. So people had a wine subscription model. So mm -hmm. even if they weren't ordering food or um, anything like that, they came in to pick up their wine and then they saw, you know, the chocolate, the candy case and all these things, and they'll order a couple of things. And so that kind of was good enough to keep the business afloat because, you know, wine's pretty pricey. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I thought that was like a really interesting concept, you know, and so I think even though, you know, our industry has kind of fallen flat during this time, I think I always say that there's no better time to build than the ground, you know? So yeah. I think we, it was time for restaurants to kind of come up with innovative ways to sustain themselves because a lot of business models were, especially in the restaurant industry was built on, um, on with very small margins, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. And that's not mm -hmm. really ideal, especially, you know, for emergency cases like this, um, though no one, though no one could have predicted a pandemic, but, just I think in the bigger scheme of things you know a lot of restaurant industries fail when they first start like that's mm -hmm. a huge statistic like over half because yeah. they just don't have enough financial backing just to get started and if they're slow in the first couple of months they're out you know it's just it's so easy to fail a restaurant in the beginning and so it, it's crazy to see where we'll go from here but it's also kind of exciting for chefs because we're kind of coming together and thinking of new and creative ways to feed people and you know, I'm going to be the young generation, I guess, that has seen both sides, I guess, to yes, see exactly. what happens, you know? Mm -hmm. How do you think, 
how do you think chef's creativity is going to be, you know, impacted during this time if we're talking about anywhere between 20 to 40 to 50%, you know, uh, restaurant losses over the next sort of six months to a year um, as that, as that slowly sort of plays out, like that's a lot of chefs who aren't working. Like, what do you, what do you think's going to happen there? Do you think a lot of people will just stop being chefs that were chefs before? Do you think they'll move to their own ghost kitchen? Like what's your sort of gut feel? Like you're, you're close to young chefs at the moment. So what do you think? Um, I think we we're seeing a little bit of everything. Um, chefs are developing newer skills, different skills, diverse skills um, to kind of just keep working for the time being. I, but it's all within the same industry. So I know that um, for fine dining, like I'm a huge fan of Dan Barber. He's probably like my favorite chef ever, but he <laughs> is calling, he's calling all of the chefs to take back um, agriculture and where food comes from because that's one of the biggest and that's one of the biggest issues that we've had um in our industry because the thing is though when you're a chef you're responsible for way more than just uh feeding people on a given night you know we're responsible for the supply chain of where food comes from where we're ordering from we have the sustain the sustainability need to make or that really didn't make sense. But, you know, we have this um, need to make sure that we're giving the highest quality product to our guests, but then also leaving a really green footprint of our restaurants, because that's kind of a big deal of how much waste a restaurant produces. And so yeah. we're really responsible for all of these things. And so um, he made this huge pitch a couple of months back to call all chefs to go ahead and, uh, sow seeds in your yard, get your neighbors in it, get your communities involved. Because when we grow food locally and the supply chain reduces and that produces a healthier and better um, ingredient and a healthier us, you know, because we're consuming it. So it's not ridiculed with like all these pesticides and things like that, that a lot of big agriculture has kind of taken over. Mm -hmm. And so we see a lot of chefs moving towards farming and agriculture, which is really cool. But then other uh, chefs and restaurateurs are getting really creative on how to uh, create safe spaces for families and couples to meet up and have a really nice dining experience. And I think um, it was either in New Zealand or Denmark uh, where they created these little uh, greenhouse pods where people mm -hmm. can enjoy a nice dinner. And so it's just, it's kind of exciting. And I think it leaves a little hopeful footprint for everyone around to kind of uh, show that it is, it is possible. It shows a little glimpse into the future of what we're able to create. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I've seen a little bit of that, you know, some restaurants have, uh, uh, because they have access to uh, agriculture and things like that, they're selling what their ingredients in those, uh, you know, those like freshly boxes or those yeah. boxes that ship yeah. you ingredients. They're doing mm -hmm. that based on their restaurant meals to give it like a very romantic feel, uh, a piece of their restaurant. And so you can assemble it at home with very cute, very detailed ingredients and mm -hmm. recipes that you can cook at home. I've seen other restaurants um, jar up their pasta sauces and all their dressings and things like yep. that, because that's a staple or fresh uh, bakeries where they make fresh bread, they deliver it. And mm -hmm. so you see all these little micro businesses stem from the restaurant to kind of keep them afloat, to give them a little bit of balance. Um, I don't think that that will be a permanent, uh, 
a permanent uh, installment in those restaurants because <laughs> I think people really come for the ambiance and the experience. You know, if they wanted just jars of things, you know, they could go to a grocery store and get that. And yeah, so exactly. I think, and I think that's the main takeaway. I think they're, people are just willing to really support uh, restaurants in that time because they know that they're struggling. So they're willing to buy the pasta jars, the gallons of milk from the grocery, from the restaurants and things like that. Yeah. And so I think that's all, everything that I've seen this far. And I think people are very hopeful. Um, and the chefs that who have been unemployed are really just still working in the industry, but kind of in different aspects. They're working on uh, the supply chain. They're working on agriculture. Mm-hmm. They're working on climate change. You know, they're working on yeah, all these different, different things, things that are right. very, mm-hmm. very related. Mm. Is, is that your hope that all these things that the chefs are working on or the owners are working on and, you know, um, items which I know you really care about, especially around sustainability, food waste, those kind of important issues, is that your hope that, you know, most venues will now start to care about those things where before it was just, you know, if that was born and bred into what they were doing, you know, probably no more than probably 20 or 30% of sort of hospitality venues were really caring about sustainability and food waste and those kind of things. But now I feel like it's amped up a bit. Do you think that's a fair comment? Yeah, I, I definitely think so because I think one of the biggest issues um, well, first off, just to throw that out there, it's been proven that people don't really change for morality reasons. Like if, mm-hmm. you know, green initiatives needed to be um, imp- improvised in a new location and they're like, oh, it's better for the planet. You should do this. People aren't willing to change, especially when there's a monetary attachment mm-hmm. to that. Usually green mm-hmm. initiatives are a little bit more expensive. Yeah. But when you're starting something from brand new, starting it from scratch and clearly the old way didn't work and you have this opportunity to start again new, it's, it's like, why not? You, the, all the ducks are in a row to create yep. this. And mm-hmm. knowing that it'll be better branding, better marketing for the monetary side, but then also just a better future for your employees, for your guests, for your um, everyone all around. It's like, why not create this? And so I think it's definitely... I think also with COVID, you know, as people stay quarantined, we kind of had all all of us have had this very similar euphoric Mm. perception on the world of like what we can envision envision it um, in the future. And Mm -hmm. I think we have let go um, of a lot of the past ways of um, overconsumption and waste and things like that. And I think all of us internally have made a small switch or small adjustment that we're all in this together, like the sense of we're all like high school musical reference there, but um, (laughs) we're we're literally in this, you know, together. And I think that that's the main root of all of us having hope to move forward past this. And so um, to do it together, that means like when I reopen my business or when so-and-so does theirs, we're going to try to put more green into it. We're going to try to make it a little bit better for everybody. Mm -hmm. And, um, and clearly with agriculture and the food industry that collapsed with everything going on, like they overproduced and no one could buy it because we didn't have ways to transport it. And that's a huge problem. If there's only one location, let's say it's in California and I'm in DC and there's no way for it to get to me. That's a problem. Why aren't we growing any food in the East coast, you know? So it's all these different things that kind of woke us up and we're like, we need to kind of be in charge of this. We need to be in charge of our food and watch, you know, all these different things. You know, we could 
envision a better life, you know? And I think people saw that when in LA, when all the smog cleared and all these yeah. different things when we're Absolutely. like, wow, we can actually envision this, you know? How do you, you know, you talked at the start about Chick-fil-A having, you know, three pe- <laughs> lines of, um, you know, lines and lines and lines of people around the block. Like, it's interesting. Where do you think fast food is going to move to? Because fast food, like if we, if we really think about it, like fast food controls a lot of food production. They feed a lot of people every day affordably um, all over the world, but especially places like, you know, America and Australia and stuff like that. Like, where do you think they should move to? Do you think Chick-fil-A should start doing free range chicken and um, sustainable packaging and all that kind of stuff? Or like, do you think they're going they're going to. It's so mm. funny when I think I think it's really funny because we actually have way more power than we think that we do. Because yeah. big companies, when you know that all they care about is money, then mm. we control. We have all the money. So yes. <laughs> like you're going to sell us what we want. Yes. And the thing is though, people want fast food and junk food and so that's why they sell it. But people also are turning vegan. People also care about sustainability. And so Dunkin' Donuts has Beyond Meat Now. Burger King has Impossible Burgers. All Mm -hmm. of these changes are happening. And we've seen this before when um, that Super Size Me um, thing came out and that got a big backlash. They did they did away with the supersizing. And then this another study came out that they don't they don't tell you what's in the food and all these calories and all these things. Mm -hmm. And so now it's required that they list the calories and what all the ingredients and. So when we demand something and you can see a a societal change or societal shift, they're going to match that because we want your, they, they want our money. And so the thing is though, if we were like, okay, we have a higher demand for uh, plant-based, we have a higher demand for possible burgers. We have a higher demand for fat-free or sugar, sugarless options. Mm -hmm. They're going to, they're going to match that. And so I'm not too worried about fast food. It's, we have to change us first and demand it, you know, and they'll just naturally change. One awesome point. Um, my last question to you, Precious, is like, I know you've got a lot of stuff going on. Like, um, I know you had a lot of things that you were hoping to do um, this year, as we talked about last week, pretty briefly. But like, what are you looking forward to next in your career moving forward to the next year or so? Um, hmm. I think um, I'm definitely looking forward to... Um, starting my career, I guess. Um, I, it was, it's kind of frustrating, but I've kind of made peace with it. I've had a lot of conversations last week. I'm in the process of moving. And so I kind of squeezed in maybe too many interviews last week. (laughs) Um, I I feel like I could have wrote a book at that point. (laughs) Um, but it also came with these really good realizations that, um, you know, I think there's these pressure, this pressure of like meeting these certain deadlines in our life. Like, okay, we need to do this by this year. We need to do this by 30, all these different things. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, I don't think it was fair for me. And I don't think it's fair for anybody else to have that pressure on themselves for mm-hmm. not, you know, meeting their deadline during the middle of a pandemic. I just think that's a little unfair <laughs> of, of amount of, of pressure. So um, unfortunately, my I was supposed to go to culinary school this upcoming September, and that got pushed back to January. And originally, I was very upset because I was like, mm. you know, I have to be there at this year and, and all these different things, you know, and I have to be a chef, like an official chef, I'm 25, like all these different things, you know, and I realized that I just need to relax. I could read a book about things like that. I can learn different skills at home and mm-hmm. find different joys that way. I had to realize um, 
I had to, I had to strip everything back and realize like why I wanted to do what I do. Mm-hmm. And I do it for, in the hospitality industry, I think everybody can relate to this. You do it for the servitude. You do it for helping people. You do it for mm-hmm. the smiles that you get for the thank yous, the joy, the birthdays. And, and so I'm like, I can, I can do that. And so with my podcast, I talk to other uh, foodies and people who are passionate about things like that, about agriculture and all these different things. And mm-hmm. I, that brought me a lot of joy. And um, so I guess in the future, um, to answer your question, I'm looking forward to going to school, but you know, at my own pace in my own time <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and um, working on my podcast show, I kind of had this weird realization that it'd be a pretty cool, like, um, I feel like my specialty is talking, which is, you know, I was voted most talkative for my high school superlative, which ironically didn't seem like a good thing at the moment, at the time. Now it's a positive, right? Um, mm. <laughs> but um, I honestly thought it'd be such a cool job to have, um, there's a show called Somebody Feed Phil and like oh, all those yeah. shows yeah, where yeah, yeah. I mm-hmm. love that show. And I'm like, I'm kind of geeky. It'd be so fun to just travel and eat food with people and talk about it and geek out over stuff. I don't know. So that's what's been really keeping me going. Maybe. Maybe in the future you'll see me on a Netflix special. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to that day and then and then revert back to this podcast. So that's cool. Um, Precious, how's how's the best way that people can get in contact with you and find out about what you're doing in the food scene? Sure. Um, you can find me anywhere and everywhere at Precious Pioneer. I have a YouTube channel. Um, I have a podcast called Precious the Foodie. Um, but if you want to reach me, um, like in for me to message you back <laughs> you can mes- you can message me on instagram i'm pretty good about that so um but yeah precious pioneer awesome precious thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it and stay safe <laughs> of course thank you thanks for tuning in for another episode of the open pantry podcast i hope you really enjoyed it as always please look in the bio of this podcast and always Send me a voicemail message. I'd love to know what you think of the podcast or just follow us on Instagram under Open Pantry Consulting. Until next time, stay well.